Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, join our assistant curator Jennifer Lam as she discusses the history and practice of collecting art in Singapore during the early 20th century, with reference to the Siu Hai Lo collection of Chinese painting and calligraphy. I would like to begin by sharing with you uh, a little bit about myself and why I find it fascinating to, to study the action of collecting and the content of what's being collected. Um, so that this will set us a bit of a historical grounding before we move on to a more Singapore context. Yeah. So those of us who have collected something, maybe this might be some of the questions we have thought of along the way. So this is like a front cover image of my master thesis. Um, so it's titled Organizing Chaos, and my paper actually aims to introduce the Wunder Karma as a model for contemporary curating practice and exhibition making. It argues that it's a model that's more suitable than the white cube prototype um, in relation to our present context, and that instead of acting as an opposition, I believe that both of them should exist as a dichotomy. Um, and using Michel Foucault's philosophy in on episteme from his book, The Order of Things, um, as a primary anchor for this argument. Um, I first discuss how curating practice and exhibitions actually can embody uh, different types of epistemes and then emphasize the necessity to look beyond the Euro-American framework to include Asian contexts um, for theories and also principles in the way we think and how we collect. So I don't know if any of you know who Michel Foucault is. He is arguably one of the most savvy French philosophers of our modern time. And he was actually the first one ever to appear on a 1980s Vogue American cover page. Well, Foucault was known for his theories addressing power, social control, institutions, and knowledge. And in his book, The Order of Things, it's the title that everybody will go refer to, um, particularly when examining in the academic fields of museum studies, as well as reflecting upon the museum system of collecting. So while, aiming, so while the aim of the book was to unravel origins of human science, um, Foucault kind of cut across different disciplines and bends through time to emerge with the developed notion of episteme. Uh, episteme means um, knowledge structures, structures of knowledge, how we think, how we produce knowledge. Um, so he began his investigation with the late 16th century European um, creation, the Wunderkammer, or more frequently known as the Cabinet of Curiosity. So that's a very well-known image of a, um, um, what a Wunderkammer or Cabinet of Curiosity is, the black and white photo there. So as far as we know to date, um, Michel Foucault was the first to interrogate the act of collecting and also how do we collect um, and use it as an anchor for his theory on, on the shifting types of episteme through time. So for Foucault, our structures of knowledge change as the way we collect, identify, classify, and testify the objects that we collect changes. So isn't it fascinating to learn that our relationship with the material world actually directly influences our way, our cognitive functions and abilities? 
Well, that's what I think. So um, this is a table that um, I drew up when I was dissecting Foucault's The Order of Thing, and that's a um, English cover. So as I was looking at him, I just find that it was a great pity that he passed on a bit too early, and also without any exposure to Asia. Because I believe that if he had been immersed or exposed to Asia, he would definitely revise his last chapter, which he talks about the modern episteme. And so in my thesis, I criticized Foucault for this, that he was overtly Euro-American-centric, and that um, his proposed knowledge structure of the modern reinforces post-colonial ideologies and fail to address a globalized world. So while I, while I admire Foucault greatly in terms of his episteme theory and his ability to give birth to it using um, the collection of things, um, I cannot help but to become quite hungry for the kind of relations that we actually have here in Asia as to with our material world. So therefore, the opportunity to work on and to explore this historical significant collection, the Shohai Lo collection in Singapore was ex exactly what I have been hoping for. Um, so over a period of six months, um, I basically just poured myself into um, the managed stories of Singapore in terms of whether it's, it's art history or whether it's its cultural development, the social political changes, or even its migration histories, because all these different sectors kind of informed one another. Um, and the result is this panel. So by February earlier this year, um, my investigation into the collecting in Singapore during the early 20th century formed this panel, which um, is one of the first thing you see when you enter the exhibition. Um, so here we have um, nine collections um, by 10 collectors whose ways of collecting and roles as collectors um, shaped, our, shaped our local cultural context. And although none of them are with us anymore, um, many of them still influences us today, um, whether it's um, in terms of the ideology or uh, in terms of the things that they have collected. So from studying these collections and collectors, um, this model of collecting was developed, um, the model you see, the Venn diagram. And then questions such as these ran through my mind. What was the content of the collection? How did they collect it? Were there any network of collectors at that time? What were their relationships and exchanges? And also, why did they collect what they collect and how they collect? So many questions. So let, let us begin by taking a look at these 10 collectors and their collections. And the order of it is loosely um, chronology based on um, the significance of the collection and not by the, the birth year of the collector. So the first one who comes across definitely is uh, Huang Manshi. Um, we have this black and white photo of him um, pictured with Xu Beihong, and Xu Beihong regarded him as his second brother. Um, and the reason of this is, maybe some of you might have seen um, the Xu Beihong exhibition a few years back. No, not sure, okay. Well, um, so why Huang Manshi was uh, significant is uh, he's a, um, businessman that was based in Singapore, and he was one of the key patrons of Xu Beihong. And to be honest, in a way, without him, Xu Beihong might not be who he is today, 
because in 1925, when Xi Beihong was in France, and he had been in France for over six years, China was in a political turmoil, and the government funding for his studies was very irregular, and he basically couldn't meet his ends. Um, and it was just at that time that he got acquainted to um, Huang Mengui, who was Huang Manshu's elder brother, who was visiting France at that time. And so Huang Mengui wrote a letter to his younger brother um, asking for help, and in which um, Huang Manshu then wrote back, inviting Xu Beihong to come to stay in Singapore um, so that he could recommend the artist to paint portraits of certain leaders in the Nanyang Chinese community. And from there on, like, their, their relationship formed. Um, so Xu Beihong got the funding he needed, got his support, um, was able to pursue his artistic um, interests. But at the same time, this friendship also benefited Huang Manshi because Huang Manshi, um, the name of his collection is called Bai Shan Zai, and that's because he, he's believed that he had collected over 100 pieces of fan paintings. He loved fan paintings. So in return, Xi Beihong actually offered to help him to, to seek out these works and to acquire them. Um, the next um, in Singapore is Venerable Kong Hyo. His collection, um, when he was alive, he never really identified or, or called it as his own collection. Um, they were just gifts from friends, friends who happened to be artists, um, friends who happened to be literatis or scholars, um, friends who, who came to him, whom, whom he knew before he became a venerable. And of course, after becoming venerable, they kind of followed him in terms of his Buddhist practice as well. Um, and so in the black and white photo here, we have one of his closest friends, Feng Zikai, um, whose, uh, whose daughter, I believe, is currently staying in Singapore, if I'm not wrong. Um, and, and it was only after Venerable Kong Hyap had passed on that um, I, I guess his uh, students or the fellow monk or the community around him decided to do something about these massive um, artworks that has accumulated over the years. So um, part of it was donated to Zhejiang Museum. Um, quite a bit of it remained in Singapore um, and can be found at the Kong Hyap Memorial Hall. Um, I, I do encourage you to visit it if you do. I mean, the opening hours is slightly strange, but do, do make an effort to, to go take a look at it. So the next one is um, here is uh, Tan Kang Cho. Um, I must admit that I knew very little of him because primary materials on him is quite rare. So if any of you here knows anything about him, please let me know after this session. He, he's the, he is the founder of a collection called um, Bai Hong Lo, and that means that he actually collected over 100 pieces of paintings or artworks by the artist um, Huan Bing Hong. Huang Binghong was his teacher at the time when he was studying in Jinan University before he came to Singapore in the 40s. And when he arrived into Singapore, he was immediately like um, the principal of first Duan Meng High School and then following the Chongcheng High School. Because he was known as a... Uh, when, when he arrived in Singapore, because he was already known as a well-established um, uh, calligrapher, um, he participated quite a bit in terms of um, the artistic activities there. Therefore, in 1991, um, after he has passed away, um, the Chinese Calligraphy Society of Singapore um, established an art award under his name 
in, in means to honor him and in means to like, remember him. So chronologically, sort of around the same time, this is kind of like after the World War. Um, so Australian Frank Sullivan arrived in Singapore in 1947. Um, he started off as being, a, uh, he worked at a radio station, he was a journalist. Um, and within 10 years, the first 10 years of him being in Singapore, he had already amassed quite a bit of artworks. As to whether these were purchases or whether they were gifts is still quite ambiguous. But undoubtedly, in his first 10 years in Singapore, he really immersed himself into the art scene here by being one of the first vice president of the Singapore Art Society. So we have him here um, in the photo on the right, on your right, there where we see a site profile. So that's actually a picture taken from one of the opening of the so Singapore Art Society. And next to that, even though um, it's an event that he um, acted as a speaker at the first uh, Modern Art Society uh, exhibition, that was actually one year before that Modern Art Society was registered as an art society. So, so this is uh, 1963, the Modern Art Exhibition, uh, organized by Ho Ho Ying, um, and his peers, and uh, the guest of honor sits behind him there, um, Han Shuyi Ying. So what's a little bit particular about Frank Sullivan is that um, because he reached a financial issue in the 1956, so he was in a way kind of forced to part with um, his collection, and he sold it to uh, Lok Wan Tho. And uh, in, in there's only one book that's on him, and I think maybe Ken Chow is able to tell us more about that because he was consulted on. Um, Frank Sullivan actually said that um, it wasn't really an entire purchase. It was sort of like a loan, kind of like as if he had pawned that collection off so that eventually if he had enough finances, he could always purchase it back from Lok Wan Tho. But then unfortunately, Lok Wan Tho kind of passed on a bit too too late and I mean too early and at uh, unfortunate circumstances. So he was not able to acquire these collection back. And soon later on, um, he actually uh, got appointed as the press secretary by the Tunku Abdul Ar Rahman and he moved from Singapore to Malaysia where he continued to be based until he left um, in the early 80s. Let's see, oh. And even though he had moved to Malaysia by then, he still stayed into quite close contact with Singapore. He almost acted sort of like a, not an ambassador, but maybe like a, like a mediator, like, like someone that travels between the two, two land, um, as well as Indonesia, in fact, like Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia. Um, he's very well known among the local artists as well. Um, and despite that he left Singapore, he no longer really contributed directly to it. Um, a lot of the artists still kind of relates to him very closely and personally. And regarding to his um, achievements, um, he, he helped set up the Kuala Lumpur National Art Gallery in the 60s. Um, and subsequently, before he left Kuala Lumpur and Southeast Asia, he donated um, quite a bit of his own collection at that time to this museum um, in Kuala Lumpur. So around the same time um, of the, this late 40s, early 50s period, um, 
There were, of course, these substantial collectors whom we might be more familiar with, like, for example, uh, Dr. Tan Zichuo, um, whom uh, donated quite a bit of his collection to the Asian Civilization Museum. And actually, some of it is on display right now in their uh, Chinese Literati um, Gallery. Um, and for Tan Zichuo, his collection is known as uh, Xiang Xue Zhuang. And in the black and white photo, we can see that um, it's taken in 1950s. Pardon me. Yes, 1960s. Yes, at the Cafe restaurant. So he hosted a dinner for his fellow collectors and art lovers or um, artist friends. Um, so you can see uh, to the, your right on the corner there beginning, that's Chen Chong Sui, and then there's Chen Wen Xi. And then there's an unknown man with most, much of his face cut off, so we don't know who that person is. And then there's MC Wong, Tan Ken Cho, and then that's uh, Dr. Tan Zi Cho in the middle. And then after that is uh, collector Lo Chuk Tiu, collector Yo Kilim, and then an unidentified um, gentleman. And next to that is Liu Kang and Chen Ren Hao. So, Okay, seems like maybe all these names might be unfamiliar to you, but all these people were very significant um, of that time, and they were a lot. Um, they were very much known as our pioneers or our first-generation artists um, in Singapore. Um, so, but other than these kind of listed um, um, contributions that Dr. Tan did um, in 1950s, he organized a charity sale of more than 100 artworks in his own collection. And proceeds of that actually went separately to the University of Malaya at that time, currently NUS Museum, I mean NUS, um, to the Singapore Anti-Tuberlucus Association, as well as the Tongji Hospital. And later on in 1977, um, Dr. Tan contributed 50000 to the Singapore Art Societies to set up the Tan Zichuo Art Fund, uh, Art Award Fund, in which his family continues to contribute to today. Um, but sadly, after his passing, um, his family, because of uh, inheritance tax issues at that time, they decided to disperse the collection, uh, but much of it, or rather a significant amount of it was donated to the Asian Civilization Museum to become part of the national collection of Singapore. So just now I mentioned uh, Lo Chuk Tiu, who was sitting next to Dr. Tan Zi Cho in the black and white photo. So he is the founder of uh, Xu Bai Zai collection. Um, similar to Dr. Uh, Mr. Tan Keng Cho, he studied in Jinan University uh, and he was taught by uh, Huang Binghong for quite a number of time as kind of like an extracurriculum activity after school. But because it was this relationship with Huang Binghong that he actually began to learn and um, practice Chinese ink, uh, Chinese painting and calligraphy, and began to cultivate an eye for connoisseuring um, these artworks. And therefore, that actually helped him to establish himself to become one of the most known and reputable um, collector for uh, Ming Dynasty works, as well as the early Qing Dynasty period as well. So here we have a colored photograph taken 1993, um, April, um, a few days before uh, Mr. Lo passed away um, quite suddenly here when he was visiting Singapore. And this was actually a lunch that was hosted by his very dear friend, Mr. Yo Kilim. 
who's the owner of um, Shohalo. So just now I mentioned uh, Lok Wan Tho when I was talking about Frank Sullivan. So Lok Wan Tho um, grew up in Europe and he kind of returned to Singapore um, during the early 30s and started the Cathay organization. Um, but it was only really after the Second World War and also with acquaintance with um, Frank Sullivan, Malcolm McDonald and all those people at that time that he really began to look into contributing and also supporting and being a patron of the arts and culture in Singapore. I mean, we know more, we are more familiar of him nowadays because of uh, his bequest to the nation, to the country here, which kind of started um, the art section of the National Collection in 1959. And of course, one of his closest um, friend or artist friend would be Chong Su Ping. He's an artist that he really admired and, and really um, fully supported. In fact, he funded quite a bit of his um, of Chong Su Ping's uh, sort of journey or adventure to London in 1961. Uh, and very few people know that, but because Lo Wan To is a very busy man, so one of a quite quiet individual who had uh, supported his endeavor in the arts and culture was his secretary, uh, Miss Anne Talbot Smith. Um, because it was through Anne that Lok was able to form friendships and more inti uh, intimate relationships um, with the local art scene. I mean, because, I mean, he's a man with many hats and he really doesn't have much time. So Anne was sort of like his extra arm that kind of goes out to, to liaise for him, to get to know people like um, Thomas Yeo, Ng Ting, Matt Kam etc. And even though after Lok's uh, unfortunate early death, um, and continued to be a very strong support for the art scene here in Singapore, um, particularly through her participation in um, activities and events uh, with the Singapore Art Society, for example. So Yo Kilim here, uh, we've seen him twice so far in a black and white and a colored photo. He's the founder of uh, Show Hai Lo, who um, is right now um, available for the public in our level four gallery in the city hall wing. So, uh, Yo, unlike uh, Dr. Tan Tzu Cho and Lo Chok Tiu, um, he did not really receive a, quite a high education. He didn't go to university, that sort of thing. Uh, he really was a self-made man, um, um, an entrepreneur, a businessman, um, started working off as a coolie at the dock, and then gradually um, acquiring status, sort of, at the same time, wealth. Um, so in the beginning, he didn't really understand art and he thought that art was just kind of like um, something you hang on the wall and make your house pretty in that sense. But one particular event really triggered his curiosity, which um, grew and grew and grew, and that's why his collection grew as well, um, was because um, around the 40s, 50s period, um, he wanted to seal a deal with this Japanese client and he'd been trying so very hard to seal this deal. But, you know, they were almost kind of like going towards a bad deal. Um, but Mr. Yeo kind of thought that, well, you know, it's better to make a friend rather than to have an enemy. So before the two of them part, he, he knew that this Japanese gentleman really liked this Chibaishi painting that was hanging in his office. So he decided to take it down and give it to the gentleman. 
And this simple action um, shocked the Japanese counterpart. Um, and in return, he offered him a very good deal in which um, they continued to um, have a business um, onwards, even up to today, like the two families are still closely connected. And so it was there that Yokilim was quite um, appalled and like, you know, why, what, what's so special about this scroll, this thing that, that, that made this man change his mind, whereas I've, I've tried so many ways and so long to change his mind and nothing worked. So, so from there, he began to invest time. He read about it. He asked people about it. People like Tan Zi Chou, people like Lo Chok Tiu, um, and of course, people like Chen Chong Sui. So these three gentlemen that I just named, um, they were really sort of the core, um, core friends, but also um, the core advisors or anchors or whatever you want to name it, that actually... Um, helped and also um, worked together with Yokilim in cultivating his collection, which we will go into more detail later. So the last collection that made a point in Singapore is the Kwan and Michael Sullivan collection. Um, they are a couple. Uh, Sullivan is uh, Canadian. Yes. Uh, studied in Oxford, uh, got appointed to Singapore to be the first curator in the 1950s. Um, but before he arrived or before he became a professor in art history, um, he served at the Red Cross. And therefore, um, he met his wife in Chengdu. And while they were in Chengdu, um, they got to know uh, the Chinese artists there. For example, um, like Wu uh, Zhuoren, Zhang Daqian, etc. I mean, at that time, I mean, this name might be very well known and famous to us nowadays, but at that time, they were just ordinary men who was living in a village and trying to um, escape from the Japanese army, for example. That's why they were all in Chengdu. So upon arriving into Singapore, they spent only five years here. But in this five years, this couple was able to do amazing things. They set up um, the University of Malaya Museum, which is what we know now today, the NUS Museum. Um, they also forced, uh, forged um, long-lasting friendship. Like for example, um, this is a portrait that uh, Chong Su Ping painted. Chong Su Ping is not known to paint kind of like intimate individual portraits of someone. So, so it means a lot for, for Chung Su Ping to want to paint a portrait of Quan Sullivan. It, it means that there must be this intimacy and this emotions and relation behind it for them to, for this work to even exist. And at the same time, um, while Quan Sullivan mainly supported Michael in terms of his uh, university undertaking and the museums, um, Michael then ventured out. Um, he participated in the Singapore Art Society. Um, he was one of the first um, festival director for the Singapore Art Festival. Um, and even though it was a really short five years, it really did change um, what we know of today, Singapore art. So, with all this data collected um, from these nine collections and ten collectors, um, 
this model of collecting was developed. So let us take a closer look. Well, first of all, um, I work, uh, well, the designer of the exhibition worked quite closely with me to, to develop this so that it kind of makes sense because uh, I'm, I'm quite a messy person in a way, I think. So, um, so we, we, we develop characters. So by looking at the many different names and the different people that was linked to who and who and all those, um, we, we decided to give them sort of like a title. So they are artists, collectors, coinoisters, organizations, and um, businesses. So difference between organization and business is like business is commercial. Organization could be like the Singapore Art Society, for example, um, sort of like non-profit or artist-led or created, or um, museums or university, for example. And, and, and then from there, um, four stages of collecting or factors that influence the formation of a collection were identified. Um, because over time, really, um, these nine collections kind of took up and become a life of its own with or without their founders, in a sense. And so, so, so using um, Yokilim and the Shohailo collection as a starting point, as an example, the model was drawn. Um, so we see it here. So yes, I would like to use this opportunity to also point out that um, there's two faults of this model, which um, we or I were not able to overcome, which is it doesn't reflect um, a change in time. You don't know when, what happened, in a sense. And also, um, you can't see all those things that the collector did beyond his collection. For example, his uh, philanthropy in um, medicine, in schools, or even um, in terms of um, just supporting the poor, for example, which Yokilim did. So let's look at the first section, which is the collector's uh, immediate circle. So this circle, in a way, it's a, you could say it's a mixture of friendships, family, but also uh, acquaintances, um, business partners, or uh, colleagues even. Um, so they, they mainly make up of uh, artists or knowledgeable audiences, that's what we call them, and uh, fellow and enthusiastic collectors. So here are some archival photographs. I mean, the black and white we've seen already earlier. Um, so the one uh, on, the, on your right, top right, um, that was taken um, in 1987 when Liu Hai-su came to visit Singapore. Uh, Liu Hai-su is Liu Kang's teacher. Um, and we see that uh, Yo Kilim and Liu Hai-su captured in a, in a, in a moment of, uh, um, of exchange, of intimacy, like Yo Kilim was giving him a present. Um, and then the picture on the bottom, so, so, so the guy with the, the white beard and the white hair, that's Zhu Chan. Um, so he visited Singapore um, in the, let me look, take out the year, uh, in 1988, March. Uh, and because he's such a well-known um, name already at that time, um, it attracted many art lovers, including artists and collectors who just come together for a gathering. Um, so we see, yeah, so, so, so that, that guy here, this one, uh, his Wu Zai Yan. Uh, 
uh, and then there's Si uh, Hyang uh and of course, um, maybe you can identify Liu Kang, who's on the other corner there with his wife. Uh, his wife is located behind Si Hyang So in terms of uh, the source of collection, um, that was a time where there wasn't really any commercial art galleries. You know, even auction houses wasn't really in existence in, in Asia at that time. So much of it was actually relied upon uh, individuals. Um, so how Yo Kidim, for example, how he developed his collection was mainly either they, were, they could be gifts from friends, they could be direct purchases from artists, they could be uh, works that um, his artist friends or collector friends who had helped him to acquire and brought down from either China, Malaysia, Indonesia. Um, there were also uh, commissioned portraits. For example, we know uh, Tuan Miati and Lai Kui Fang both did a commissioned portrait of Yo Kilim. And because there was no commercial galleries, uh, dealers and middlemen was something that's quite common. So for, we know that, for example, Zhonghua Shuju, even though it was a bookstore, um, it kind of also acted in a way like a, like a middleman or a base for these kind of artworks to come through and just settle there so that those who know will then go there or get invited there to, to see the works that's available. So it was through these kind of networks and connections that collecting kind of took shape. This is in the 1940s and 50s and 60s of Singapore. Oh, and of course, um, artworks also entered Yokilim's collection through other collectors as well. For example, um, uh, Zheng Yingquan, um, he was a collector, um, and his, his collection was called the Qi Chuan Tang. Um, and I believe, if, um, if my source is correct, he kind of bankrupt, so he had to kind of liquidate his collection. And so at that time, Yokilim was able to acquire some of his works, but we were not able to identify like, which pieces came from um, this particular collection. Um, so here we have a photo taken in the 70s at Yokilim's office of Chen Chong Sui, studying a painting of a Ming Dynasty painter, um, Wang Zhengquan, of his painting, um, Bai Lu Spring in Shur Mountain. This artwork is uh, a bit too big, and so it's not on display now, but it will be once we do the rotation later on. So you see uh, Yoki Lim in a grey suit standing at a corner, kind of like quite, you know, I suppose is a bit nervous thinking like, or listening on to what um, these experts had to say of this painting. And Chen Tong Sui is... You know, he just looks so, so relaxed and in his environment, just kind of like talking about what is what and what's on the painting and all that. So, so this was actually something um, that happened at Yokilim's office quite often. And in fact, one of his family members shared with me that in our recorded interview that um, he remembered that some of their business clients actually mistook their office to be an art gallery because of all this commotion that was taking place at the same time. So, of course, we know that a collection will definitely change over time. We decide to use a more positive term, that it develops. You know, it becomes better and better. As the collector himself um, kind of groomed a sharper eye, you know, through time, through hard work, through reading, through consulting, etc. Um, and 
I mentioned Sun Tsung Sui and Lok Chok Tiu already being quite a significant figure um, in terms of Yoki Lim's uh, life as a collector, but also as very close friends. Um, but there were also other people, individuals, like um, the well-known um, Koinoisius um, from China, uh, Xu Bangda and Yang Renkai, um, who both visited um, Mr. Yeo and the Xiu Hai Lo. Um, Xu Bangda came by in 1996, December. Um, in case you don't know, he is like the person to go to. He works in the Gu Gong Museum in Beijing. Um, uh, no longer with us though, sadly, but um, he has a disciple over there next to them um, who came to visit Singapore. And um, again, um, the Yo family member shared with us that um, the, the comment that Xu uh, Bangda made after this visit was that um, which means like it was a, definitely a worthwhile trip for him to come here. And as for Yang Renkai, um, he came here about a year later, in 1997. Yang Renkai is the one on the lower, lower photo. Um, and you can see him as if, kind of like in a similar pose of what Chen Chong Sui was just now, kind of like talking about the work. And it was quite often that these people, whenever they, they see a painting that moved them, and because of their vast knowledge of art, they were able to almost kind of like magically whipped out a story and tell like, oh, this detail here, like what's it about and who left the mark here, what the seal mean and all that kind of thing. And it was also through these ways that um, Yokilim also tried to cultivate his um, next generation. So on the, in both photos, you will see um, Yokilim's, uh, one of his son with him. So the last quadrant um, is the outcome of the collection. Um, what happens to this collection as it grows, but also what happens to this collection when the founder of it pass on. Um, so of course, um, for Yokilim's case, it's now in the hand of the second and the third generation. But for a lot of the collectors that we just went through, um, most of them were either bequeathed to a public institution, or if not, they were dispersed. And it was because sort of, um, we didn't really want to miss this opportunity. You know, we don't want to like touch, touch wood that, that for this collection to be dispersed and then make something out of it and, and then go run after it and study it. So that's why we seize this um, timing in a way. Um, but at the same time, um, a private collection will always remain private and only mean something to that individual who collects it if he or she doesn't share it, you know? How do you transit something from the private sphere to the public sphere, you know? And is it something that has been kept in a room for hundreds of years, you know? How significant is that in a way? I mean, of course there's significance there, but how significant it is to, to a public who has never seen it and was never able to experience it or study it or learn about it. This is almost kind of like not looking a needle in a haystack, but sort of looking the unknown in the unknown sort of situation. Um, so for Yoki Lim, um, before he passed on, um, he donated a few, a small number of works to the National University Museum of Singapore. Um, and at the same time, 
um, throughout um, developing his collection, he welcomed um, organized tours. So we have here, for example, a black and white photo taken in the 1970s. Um, this huge group of people, um, they are the inaugural members of the Society of Chinese Artists. I don't know if you can see, but Yokilim is in the middle, and next to him, um, on his left, is Chen Chongsui, and then George Chen, and on his right is Liu Kang. And we can see younger artists there as well, for example, like sort of seated in front of Yokilim, that is a Wee Beng Choi. And then somewhere down um, to one, two, three, four, the fourth from the right, that's Ho Ho Ying. So we see like younger generations benefiting from it. So this is basically an outing that the Society of Chinese Artists had at um, Yokilim's mansion at that time at Changi Beach. Um, to look at the work, but also um, Yokilim was also a, a sort of an anonymous patron for the society at that time. Uh, and we believe partly that's because um, due to his friendship with Liu Kang and uh, Chen Chongsui. And now, coloured photographs. In spring 1997, um, the, there was an exhibition organized um, in terms of like a cultural exchange between China and Singapore, whereby around 40 artists um, from China came to Singapore to do an exhibition. Um, and the Singapore Chinese Calligraphy Society hosted them and brought them to uh, Yokilim's home um, to admire the work. So you can see that that's the upper, upper photo there. Uh, I'm not sure why they're all ladies but they're all admiring this, um, these works. So he just basically hanged them all out as if, imagine this is like his living room, what, where we are now, and he will hang all the paintings or scrolls, whether it's calligraphies or paintings, on the wall. Sometimes with no space like this extra large one, they would just stretch it out like that and have people carry it end to end. Um, the lower image is taken more recent, um, the, the same year that he passed away, uh, in 1998. Um, so there were little contacts about it, but um, the, picture, the people in the picture is uh, one of Yokilim's son and also representative from the National Heritage Board and also the then director of Asian Civilization Museum, Kenson Kwok who were visiting um, Yokilim for the very first time. Because you can see from the expression that they were in awe. They're like, oh my God, like, what's this? And this, this picture was taken by Yokilim's daughter-in-law. And, and I think it, it really means something. You know, you, you can sense the underlying messages in it. And quite funny at the same time. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chia-Kasim and Ashley Lim. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>